more like your beautiful son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Amen. Grab your Bible. Open it to the book of Ecclesiastes right there in the middle. If you're at Psalms or Proverbs, turn to the right. You'll find it. We're going to be in chapter 3, and as you're turning there, instead of the bumper video that we've experienced the last couple weeks, we're going to do something a little bit different. So be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Okay, you're looking at that and listening to this. Ready, go.
let's go home. 1965, that was written. There are six words in that song that aren't from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Anybody heard that before? And you just didn't realize that that was from the Bible? It was one of those just like aha moments that just hit you. Uh, God wrote a pop song, which is kind of cool, 50-something um, years ago. Uh, but it, it kind of brings a happy little, little moment to what is going on in this book, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, that has seemed to be uh, pretty somber or disheartening or sad. The issue with that is that that's not what Solomon is doing in chapter 3. There's not a lot of, I hate to derail the happy moment that we just had, there's not a lot in this chapter or really in these first 15 verses that, that points us to like a happy little pop song. Um, in fact, in my high school career, the prophet Hootie of Hootie and the Blowfish wrote, wrote something a little bit better that kind of fits here accidentally because I don't think that he has, was really thinking about Ecclesiastes chapter 3 when he wrote this. But, but listen to this and look at these lyrics. Why you punish me Like a wave crashing into the shore You wash away my dreams Time Why you walk away Like a friend with someone Can you teach me about tomorrow and all the pain and sorrow running free? Cause tomorrow's just another day and I don't believe in time. puts us in a better spot. Time, why do you punish me? Like the wave or like a wave bashing into the shore, you wash away my dreams. Anybody? Like, like the further along in life you get, the farther your dreams seem to get from you. Time, why you walk away like a friend with somewhere to go, you left me crying. You teach me about tomorrow and all the pain and sorrow when I'm free because tomorrow is just another day and I, I don't even believe in time. I don't even think it's a thing because of how painful it is. Time, I don't understand. There's children killing in the street and it goes on. He talks about gang violence and he talks about all these other things that are wrapped up in time. And so the difference between the mindset that was happening there with, with, with our good friend Pete Seeger in 1965, talking about the happy little moments of time that we see in Ecclesiastes to Hootie, the prophet, in 1994, talking about how terrible time is. And this is kind of the battle that we have here that Solomon presents us in chapter 3 because I think you probably just went through a season growing up that time couldn't move fast enough. When will I get my license? When will I graduate? When will I go to school? When will I have this freedom? You're fixing to go through a, a period of time that will probably go really fast for you. 
Some of you are going to extend that a little bit, but it's going to take a little while to get through that. And then you're going to enter into adulthood. And if you had a conversation with an adult, ask your parents, um, ask somebody that's been on this planet for a little while. We would begin to say, I wish that this would all slow down. Because now being on this planet for 42 years, I feel like I blinked and all of a sudden, like I'm at this point. I can remember clearly when Finley, who's now 13 years old, was born. And all of a sudden, he is like, has these adult tendencies, and he's saying adult things, and, and he's growing up really fast. Like, time is flying by. This is kind of what we see, the, kind of the, the angst that's happening right here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Because so far, Solomon has, has had this approach. He's like, hey, this cursed world is all that there is. And all of our actions in this life are worthless. They're futile. They're meaningless. They're chasing the wind. And then he takes this turn into talking about not just the earth and not just wisdom, but even our time on this earth. And so we're going to lean into this, but we have to remember this one thing. The Spirit's ultimate point in writing Ecclesiastes or inspiring Ecclesiastes to be written was to teach us that everything is meaningless unless we have Jesus. The songs that we sang Wildly important because I think it put you into a space today in worship to think this way. Everything is meaningless unless we have Jesus in our life. And this poem here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, these first eight verses, is another example to prove that Solomon believes that all of life under heaven is futile and it is meaningless. And so I like what he does here. We need to highlight this. Solomon limits his observations to the time on this planet. It's the only measure that he has. And he states that everything that there is is an occasion and a time for some sort of activity to be doing something. He puts, he puts it into time periods. We talked about this earlier, that, that winter is a great period for snow and for ice and for below zero temperatures and for hoodies and for beanies. And for some of you that wear beanies in the summer, that's not the season for that. He's, he's highlighting the seasons that come about. And we all go through seasons in life. My son, Kyler... He, when he was 11, he's 11 now, when he was 11 months old, it was okay for him to ride in the basket at the grocery store, especially in the little front part where his fat little legs could still fit through those little holes. Um, it would be weird for him to do that now because he's like gangly, extended, long. His legs would probably touch the ground if he was still sitting in the cart. But So what does he do now? He goes with me to Sam's and he surfs on the big cart, Right? And he's up there and he's just like riding through the store, waving at people like he's on parade until we fill it up with stuff. Now imagine if he was like 77. Some of you be like, that would be awesome too. Like let him do that. <laughs> we'll put him kind of like old people get away with stuff. Okay, let's put him at like 40. Okay, if he's 40 and he's just like rolling through the store just waving at people and, and me at that point, I'm like 60-something just pushing him through the store. It would be a little weird, right? That's, that's not the season for that. We all go through these seasons and this is what he's He's pointing us to we move from one season to the next as we grow up. And so this poem describes all of these activities that we're going to go through. And, and I want to highlight this before we get into it because it has this, it has 14 what they call mirrorisms. And what a mirror, mirrorism is is it compares kind of the negative to the positive, but not just end to end. It's actually including everything in the middle of it. And so one of the great biblical examples that's not here is it's heaven and earth. And so we, we kind of imagine those as being opposites, but what the scripture is actually talking about is heaven, earth, and everything in between it. And so when he talks about life and death, it's life, death, and then the time span in between those two things. And so keep that in mind as we just walk through these slowly. 
First one, there's an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. Verse 2, a time to give birth and a time to die. And then everything that follows from, from the second half of verse 2 all the way down fits in between that little space. A time to give birth when you were born and a time to die. So what is it? A time to plant and a time to uproot. That's this idea, horticulture. You plant something and then it grows and it produces fruit and then eventually lack of water, lack of sun, too much sun. Something happens and you just have to uproot the plant and you start over. This is what he's talking about here. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. Okay, now we, we have this conversation with our um, Bible study leaders. Solomon is not being prescriptive here. He's not pointing us in a direction on things that we should do during seasons. Okay, because some of you are like, all right, I have a hit list already, John, and you just said there's a time to kill. Would you just let me know when that happens, when it is that time, and we can go at it? This is not what he's, at, he's saying to us. He's just saying that this, this reality for us, there's going to be seasons that this actually happens. Um, what it really means is there's during appropriate times to do that. So he's talking about war. He's talking about self-defense. He's actually talking about animal sacrifices. He's talking about crops that, that you have to kill off to plant other crops. All of that is included in this time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. There's this idea that the best idea you can think of is if you drive through neighborhoods in town, maybe the town that you grew up in, and there's really, really old houses, and what do they do to those other houses? Eventually, they're torn down, and they put new houses there or businesses, like the old historic house becomes a Chipotle or something like that. That's, that's what they do. And can you, if, if you can zoom out, you go, that house used to be what? New. It used to be an empty piece of property that somebody put labor into to build something beautiful. But what happened? Time. Time happened. And eventually that thing became run down and it wasn't worth fixing up anymore. And so you flatten it and you build something else. And you know what happens? You're going to go visit that space. If the Lord gives you this much time, 60, 70 years later, and that thing that was built and you remembered it being new will be what? torn down and they're going to put something else there hopefully at that point the house floats and then there's ones above it that are floating around you're like maybe that would be cool this is what it's talking about there's a time to build up and a time to tear down verse four a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance we live in this cursed world we're going to talk about this genesis 3 that's full of marriages and it's full of funerals you see people get married you see them dance at the reception we rejoice when somebody gets pregnant you mourn when you realize that they miscarried that baby this is the world that we that we live in that's life under the sun according to solomon we see this all throughout scripture david dances before the lord with great joy when the ark is returned in first chronicles and then he cries deeply at loss there's moments of joy there's moments of sadness there's moments of deep pain verse five a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. This is, uh, this is really pointing towards kind of a wartime mentality. It's a war strategy that they use. They're like, what are you just, I don't know this. Go out and throw rocks. Go pick up rocks and then throw more rocks. Second Kings, I'm just going to go back and read it to you because I kind of like bringing these little details into the story. Second Kings chapter 3 highlights what he's actually talking about here. If you want to write in your Bible, then you should. This little note right here, starting in verse... 19, then you will attack every fortified city and every choice city, and you will cut down every good tree and stop every spring. You will ruin every good piece of land with stones. 
Basically, it means that if they, if they have a field that they can grow stuff in, you throw big rocks in it. And then they can't plant anymore. It's in their way. He goes on in verse 25. They would destroy the cities, and each of them would throw a stone to cover every good piece of land. It just kind of ruins their next efforts. You cut off their food supply by throwing rocks in their field. This is what they're talking about culturally. It's time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, which means you're removing the stones that have been thrown into your field. That's Isaiah chapter 5. It's you clear the field of all the stones so that you can plant a beautiful vineyard. This is this idea that he's laying out in front of us. Verse 6. A time, well, well, we'll read that. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. This is another non-prescriptive, but I'm going to go ahead and say what he's actually saying here. There's a time to greet somebody with a hug and welcome them, and there's a time to break up with somebody. That's what it is. It's not like I'm avoiding a hug. It is I'm cutting off a relationship with you. That is that avoiding embracing. Verse 6, a time to search and a time to count as lost. Anybody like have a couch that eats remotes or a car that, that eats car keys or things like that? We have... My 13-year-old, Finley, had a shirt that he loved. He got it for his birthday, so it wasn't very long ago. And my wife remembers exactly when she washed it and when she put it in the dryer, but apparently the Bermuda Triangle is also in our dryer, and it did not come out, or it came out, and we don't know where it is. And I'm not lying. That was at the beginning of August when that happened. We were rolling up halfway through September now, and we still haven't found that shirt. And he reminds us of it every day. Where's that green shirt? Bro, I don't know. So today I was walking through the house and I said, hey, five bucks to whoever finds that shirt. I was just tired of the question. I was, I was tired of, and, and I'm going to try to find it too so I can get five dollars. It's going to be someplace completely random, all right? But this is what he's talking about. There's, it's a time to search and then there's a time just to count it as loss. Eventually we're going to go, bro, I don't know where it's at. It's okay. And then when you give up, what happens? Found it. We're not there yet, but that, we're going to get there. A time to keep and a time to throw away. It's really kind of this idea. Um, I think of it this way. I have a, a pennant in my office that the boys painted on Father's Day that just says dad across it. And for, if I gave it to any of you as a gift, um, you would probably think it was weird um, that I gave you a flag that said that you're my dad, one. But you would also be like, what is this kind of trash? To me, it's not really trash. But I do know this. I'm a realist. At one point, I'm going to look at that and go, why do I still have that? And some of you are like, oh, that's kind of sad. You'll get there as parents because your kids are going to give you all kind of stuff. Here, Dad, have this rock. Great. Um, <laughs> appreciate that. It's just that's how we are. And, and so there's all these memorable things. The translation that I like about this, it says that there is a time to store and there is a time for a garage sale. This is what they're talking about here. Verse 7, a time to... A time to tear and a time to sow. This is kind of the, the it's, it's griefing, it's mourning. It's the Jewish practice of tearing your garments when you're in mourning. This is Jacob when he thought a beast had killed Joseph, so he tears his clothes in Genesis chapter 37. But then when the time of mourning ends, then it's time to sew up that garment. This is what it's talking about. Go through your mourning, and then when the mourning time is over, put that garment back on, sew it up, make it right, and go back to work. A time to be silent and a time to speak. This is wise words for a lot of us. And let me throw a little bit of confusion into this. One of the most confusing verses in the planet is just a couple chapters before in Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26 verse 4 says this. 
Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you will be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. All right? If you weren't looking at it, let me read it to you again. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. What do you do? I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you do. Answer the fool. Don't answer the fool. Because if you answer him according to his foolishness, then you'll be like him yourself. But if you answer him, then maybe he'll become, or if you don't answer him, then he'll become wise in his own eyes. And it's this weird conundrum that we're in. And what he's saying here, connecting to that verse, what this verse is actually saying is that you need wisdom to know when to speak. Because you're going to be surrounded by foolish people. Sometimes you answer them, sometimes you don't. Know when to speak. There's a time to be silent and there is a time to speak. Verse 8, a time to love. And a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Again, it's not promoting war. It's not promoting passivity in war. It's simply describing part of our human experience. We think about, like, the country of Japan that after they got their heinies kicked, they kind of backed away from war for a while, right? They became very passive in war. They were a peaceful country. They were a peaceful country until when? 2015, when ISIS beheaded one of their journalists, and that flipped the switch in them. And so there is a time for peace, sure, until something happens that pushes your country to war, and then it's a time for war. The point of this, this whole poem is that there's this inevitable sameness that's going on, and this monotony to our life underneath the sun, and we go through these actions of birth and life and work and love, and then, and then eventually death. And nothing really changes in all of humanity. This is Genesis 3, we're under a curse. Genesis 5, there's going to be a generation, and then after them, there's going to be a generation, and then after them, there's going to be a generation, and that continues. You're going to be replaced. Generations will continue to come. And, and what is going to be the, the finality of every generation? Death. No matter what you do, it all ends in this one same space, and, and Solomon's going, nothing changes. Meaningless. It's meaningless in life. It's meaningless in death. Why? Because we're under this like curse in this world. So we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. That's just the way that life is. So we, we see this truth that is made alive in the first eight verses, reiterated starting in verse 9, where he, he basically just says this, what does the worker gain from his struggles? He's restating chapter 1, verse 3. What does he gain from all of this? What gain is there in this reality? What profit, what advantage do we have? If, if in this world all that we have is to work and to function underneath this imposed curse that God has given us. And I keep saying that. So what am I actually saying? Genesis chapter 3, a lot of you know this, but this is right after the fall. And what did God say to Adam and Eve? We'll start in verse 17, and he said to the man, because you have listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. And he's basically like, this is going to be difficult for things to grow. Plants are going to die. You will eat from it by the means of painful labor. Our labor wasn't ever meant to be painful. It was meant to be joy. And you're going to do that when? All the days of your life. Verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
Verse 19, and you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to the dust. What, what advantage is there in all of this? What, what does the worker gain from all of his struggles underneath this curse? The answer, nothing. You encouraged yet? Me neither. I mean, that, he's saying that there's just no purpose to this life because everything we do is nullified by this curse that we're under. There's no net gain or change from all of the planting and the building and the warring. There's just more work to do. There's more dishes to clean. There's more homework. There's more wars to fight. There's no more lasting peace. And all of it just ends in death anyway. So what are we to do with this? Like gigantic absurdity of life. We, when we looked even at this list in the first eight verses, that he gives a positive and a negative. We talked about that in every one of these verses. Birth, death. Plant, uproot. Kill, heal. Tear down, rebuild. He continues this, and if you were to do the math, what does it equal out to? Zero. When we do the math of these things, it just, it's just a net Zero, and this is the argument that, that Solomon is presenting to us, that life is just this like big non-plus. We seek meaning in all of our activities, and we come away frustrated because none of them satisfy. And so what do we do with that frustration? Where, what, it, what would that frustration do in us? What was it designed to do in us? If, if God has created these seasons... And he's put these seasons under this curse, and we have to function within these seasons. What should we do? What should it do? What should it cause us to do? And then he answers it starting in verse 10. In verse 10. I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. This is just this work, this labor, this curse that they're under. I've seen this. Verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work God has done from the beginning to the end. And verse 11 is, is an extremely difficult uh, verse to understand. Excuse me, people love to quote this verse, often out of context because they don't really understand it. So he makes, he makes three statements here that we really have to grab and, and, and connect them together. Starting at the very beginning, he has made everything appropriate in its time. Some of your Bibles say the word beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Appropriate is, is a much better word there because the, the idea here is that God has made everything good and he's made it right and he's made it so that everything fits together perfectly in its own place and in its own time. And so the... The bottom line, the, the phrase that sums kind of all of this up is that God is the one who is in charge of all of these times and all of these appointed activities. And then that idea sets up what follows in this verse, that God has this, this bigger um, hidden plan that we don't understand starting halfway through. He has also put eternity in their hearts. It's a famous verse that people like to take out of context um, because here eternity is contrasting really well with time like we're in these seasons and then but we have eternity in our hearts and, and this is what is going on here we all know that 
life underneath this sun on this planet is not all that there is. And, and not just we as in Christians. All humans know in some way, shape, or form that this is not all that there is. There, there's something more than this. We talked about it, what he's done in the first two chapters, that if, if life is meaningless, remember there's two categories that we're in. One, like God has put purpose and meaning to all things and he controls all of those and so we need to seek him to figure that out or all of it is completely meaningless and we have to admit that it's completely meaningless and we're going to die and it's just going to be a pointless existence on this floating rock. And, and so this argument is that he is, or this idea is he has put eternity in our hearts because we know that there's something greater than this and there's this desire to live forever there's this desire for more than life underneath this big sun and there's knowledge of eternity out there for us we just can't figure it out he's, he's put it in our hearts we just don't know like what to do with it that's where that comma comes in but no one can discover the work God has done from the beginning to the end so it's cute that he's put eternity in the hearts of man but we we like to leave out that last part Thank you for putting that in my man, but in my heart. But no one can discover the work that you've done from beginning to end. That should be unbelievably frustrating. We cannot know and we cannot see God's entire plan, and we cannot fully grasp it no matter how much you want to. We can't figure these things out. The limit to man's knowledge is this major theme that flows all throughout Ecclesiastes. And, and the purpose of exposing that limit is... This reality that he's trying to get us to understand that's going to push us to faith. We can't figure it out. It's all meaningless. And what that should do is not push you to despair. It should actually, actually like stir up within you this big hope that there's a God who's controlling all of it. We know that there's more out there. We want to know our purpose. We want to know our destiny. However, I know I am, and you are still like this unbelievably dependent creature that needs God's help to be able to handle like even just a little bitty small picture of what the creator is doing and to understand it. And if you doubt in any way the truth of this statement that you can't figure it out and God's ways are so unbelievably high, let me, let me read a verse that you've probably heard before that really connects this idea to... Like the bigness of God. In Matthew chapter 24, this question is asked of Jesus and his response is pretty good. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. This is Jesus talking. Neither the angels of heaven nor the son except the father alone. He's going, hey, I know you don't get this, but the Son of Man's going to come back, and he's going to come back to rescue you. But you know what? I'm the Son of Man. This is Jesus talking, not me. Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man, but I don't even know when that is. There's some things that I don't even know because God is, is that big. There's some just revealed things that, that maybe we can grasp on this planet, but there's so many more that are just mysterious to us, and we can't even fathom them we can't even start to understand them it's it's the big why game for me anybody got little brothers or sisters and you kind of remember this you got nieces and nephews now or just the the toddler that's running around and you ask them to do something and they go why well 
Well, because I said so. Yeah, but why? Uh, for your safety. Why? <laughs> because you need to eat. Why? Like, and it just goes on and on. And eventually you do what? You break them in half. <laughs> no, eventually you just, you, you, you make this statement. Because I told you so. I don't have to explain this to you, four-year-old. Because this is, what, this is what this would play out as. If I explained it to you, you would be more confused. Can you just trust me, okay, that we can't eat ice cream for dinner? I mean, you could, but it's a terrible idea. Why? Here we go. Th this little I told you so, I think, is what God does to us a lot. Because we're down here, these little minute creatures on this planet, trying to figure out the infinite God. And, and we're asking all these why questions, and he's just going, like, you, you don't dare get it. You're not even close to getting it. You can't even scratch the surface of understanding why. And if I revealed it to you, your mind would explode. You, you, you would just might as well cease to exist because you can't grasp this. So here's this main idea of verse 11 and how it fits into the absurdity of like this poem before. It's this. We, we perceive and we long for better things than the curse that we're under. But we can't see the full picture, and so we have to lean on God. Like, we want better things than what we're under right now with this curse. Can't understand it, and so God has to be the one that we lean on. We're trapped between here, now, we call time, and eternity. We're stuck because he's put eternity in the hearts of man. And as believers, we know kind of what that is, what we get one day. And so we long for this. And in longing for this, we also kind of long for the knowledge of this. And we want, we want to understand why all of this stuff is happening. God, would you help me make sense of all of this? And he's not revealing those things completely to us. And in that, we have to learn, and actually we are encouraged, to trust God that he's using these details in a grander plan that we don't understand yet. Best way I could think about this is I'm not a big fan, like, really of movies at all because my brain functions funny and I, I watch movies and I pick them apart and it makes it unpleasant for me. Um, and so, like, Star Wars is one of those that I'm like, that can't happen. I wish that could happen. That's not even a real thing. Um, all of that, like, starts flying around in my head and so I just get irritated at the movie. But my boys love it. Imagine if I took you into a theater and you have never heard of this Star Wars things before, this thing before. And so we go and we watch The Empire Strikes Back. And I show you the ending of it. And so you sit down in your seat and we turn it on and there's a fight happening. And you begin to learn that there's this guy named Luke. And he's fighting this guy named Darth. Terrible name. Vader. We'll call him that. Mr. Vader. Um, and then in the midst of that fight, you get this understanding that... This Darth guy is Luke's dad. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. It was made in 1980. All right, get out a little bit more. Um, and, and Luke screams out like a little kid, just, no! And his dad chops his hand off. And he falls in a hole. And then the rebellion retreats, and then we turn it off. And you sit there and you go, what? Okay, John? There's more to this story, right? Like, that wasn't the whole movie. Oh, yeah, there's more. And then you, try to, you try to piece some things together. Maybe you have a creative mind, and you start writing the story yourself, and you're driving yourself crazy. 
because you don't have the whole picture. You've only been shown like a sliver of what the, the director and the storyteller was doing in this, what I guess is a masterpiece. Um, it's pretty famous, and so I, I'm okay with that. The pain of that few moments that I showed you in this movie wouldn't, wouldn't really make much sense, but if, if you got to maybe next time jump into Return of the Jedi and you see that Mr. Vader <laughs> turns away from the dark side and the force and he rescues his son from the murderous emperor and spoiler it again and then the painful details begin to fall into place and you would see that that each of these little details were part of this really big masterpiece that that works together that I think now culture is ruining because they're bringing in all these little subplots just to make a lot of money um, but but that would bring about some sort of resolution that your heart was longing for right when you when you saw that this is the frustration that Solomon feels here because Solomon is zoomed in into his into his like present circumstances and, and not a lot of it is making much sense to him. And, and I think he's encouraging us by saying this, starting in verse 11, that we need to begin to zoom out. Like he's made everything appropriate in its time. God is in control of all of this stuff. He's put eternity in our hearts. We long for something more than what we're in right now. But no one can discover the work God has done from the beginning to the end. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them Wrestling through this thought, there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to enjoy the good life. It is also, excuse me, it is also the gift of God. Whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all of his efforts. Like you were, you were made for the divine. You were made with a purpose. And so there should be no surprise in you that you get frustrated when when you don't get the clear picture and you turn away from him because you were made for him. And as you begin to get driven away from him and your frustration, it, your frustration actually grows. And this is the frustration that Solomon has been exposing all throughout these first couple chapters. And this is the, the truth of this. God wants you to be dissatisfied in anything else besides him. God wants you to be dissatisfied in anything else besides him. So he says, like, I, I want them to enjoy this life. It's good. It's a gift from God that you eat and you drink and you enjoy all of your efforts, but it only works if you recognize that it's a gift from God. And so there's going to be a lot of really good things that come your way. Your, your time in Bryan College Station is a gift. The organizations that you get to be a part of can be a gift. The relationships that you form are going to be a gift. Your marriage one day is going to be a gift. Your kids are going to be a gift. But hear me, they can become wildly frustrating if you seek satisfaction in them more than from God. And so when our boys were born, we basically said, God, this is yours. Like I get to enjoy it and they're a joy to me, but you do with them whatever you want to. And I prayed that prayer when they were in the womb and we lost two kids, not because of that prayer, because God had ordained that to happen. And miscarriage is, is like an, is, is an evil part of the curse. And he allowed it for, for my wife and I's good and to grow and to really get rid of some idols that we have been dealing with and a lot of other things that have come from that. And, I, and I'm okay with praying the prayer like, God, thank you for this child that is in my life. Do with it what you may. And he said, I'm going to take it early. Am I okay with that? And what that did in me was desire, it stirred up within me a desire to want him more. This is what he's pushing us towards. 
And some of you, you hear that, and you're like, I don't, I don't like that thought. I don't, I don't like the thought that God can do what he wants, and I don't like the thought that he's limited my knowledge to even understand him. I don't like this mystery that kind of surrounds God and, and how big he is. Like, why, why, why couldn't God just make himself, like, really clearly known to me? That's why I know. God is under no obligation to cater to your intellectual curiosity. He's under no obligation to cater to your intellectual curiosity. You can't pull a string on his back and make him dance for you. Scripture is pretty clear that he caters to the contrite of heart, to the humble. Like we have to revere him and we get into that space. And that's when he responds. We love to, to quote Romans 8.28 and the promise that God works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But Paul continues to assure us after that point that what that means is famine and peril and nakedness and pain and death. God uses all of these things to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what the next verse says. So Solomon and Paul are calling us to trust God and to be confident that his plan is good and he knows all of our days and he's sovereign over all of the details of all of those days and all of the seasons that we get in in life and there's a mix of good and there's a mix of bad and joy and pain and together all of those things come together and make something beautiful. This is what he's screaming over us and oftentimes we don't like that. We would rather just have all of the good but God's not really a flea market where you get to go pick the things that you like and ignore the things that you don't. He loves you too much to allow that to happen. He just does because we're sinful and he knows if, if he allowed that to happen, we would wander and make terrible decisions. And so some of you at this point as we close are kind of thinking from your earthly vantage point, how could what happened to me ever be beautiful? Not that moment, not this in my life, not this thing. That's not beautiful. And, and what, we're, what we're seeing here is that God lovingly tells you that you are too close to see the beauty. You are. You're too close to see the big plan. And if you would just learn to trust him, that he has this plan for you, this is, this is how this makes sense in my mind. Some of you feel like that, that that shard of glass that's in your back, that's real sharp and pointed, is all that there is. But then when you remove it, you realize that it's part of a beautiful stained glass window. And it has a purpose. And it's bringing together a story that you don't get. And so as the, the band comes up and get ready to worship, I'm going to challenge you with this. What, is, what does it look like in your season to zoom out? Because this is, this is my story, for those of you who don't know. This is a quick little version of it. My parents got a divorce when I was two. If you've seen the scars on my head, I got attacked by a dog when I was four. I was living with my dad, and my mom was in Texas. And after I got out of the hospital from that dog bite, my mom came and got me, and I didn't see my dad. I saw my dad once between when I was four and when I was nine, and he was murdered in 1989 and a drug deal gone bad. The guy that murdered him 
disposed of his body in a way that nobody would ever find it. Two years, three years later, they caught this guy for kidnapping two girls in Springfield, Missouri, and to lower his sentence, he told on this friend of his and all of the crimes that they committed, and my dad's murder, stepmom's murder, one of their friend's murder was included in that with all of the details. We find that out when I'm 13 that my dad had been killed. I didn't get all the details of it until I was 20. My grandma shared it with me at that point. And that I didn't really know a dad, and so it, it wasn't it wasn't like a painful moment, it was an absent moment, it was an empty moment. And and I, I kind of had two paths really to go with that. I could be angry at this God that I had at that point followed for 11 years because I didn't have a dad and because my grandma to my face says, John, there is zero evidence that your dad was a Christ follower. He's probably in hell. And so then I, in my carnal nature, want to get mad at God. Why didn't you rescue my father? Why did you allow him to die in a drug deal that went bad? Why did he live the lifestyle that he did? And for some reason, at age nine, you rescued me from that and you've protected me from that? How, how is that fair? That's what I wanted to do. Instead, a month after I find that out, I stand on a stage in front of 26,000 people and share that story. And now, 22 years later, there's tens of, I mean, I know tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that have heard the story of my dad and what God has done through that to bring about his goodness in my life and to see the gospel shine into places that it probably wouldn't have gone. The guy who confessed to helping kill my father got a letter from me, which would have been kind of wild if you're in that story because my dad's name is John Davison. He got a letter from John Davison, which would throw you off. And I, and I just, I said, hey, I'm John's son and, and I know or I can assume what guilt you're walking under, but, but can I say that thank you for confessing. You, you brought closer, closer to our family to hear this story. And bigger than that, God's using this event for his glory in ways that I could never imagine. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak forgiveness over you and know that I'm praying for you often. And I get a letter back from him that he's accepted Christ in prison and he's leading Bible studies in prison where he's gonna spend the rest of his life. And so when I'm able to not get in the, the intimate part of it, and I'm able to zoom out and get back here and go, my dad was murdered and it was unfair and he was, he was more than likely an unbeliever and so he's in hell. Is it worth it that thousands of people have heard the gospel and been able to respond? Is it worth it to trade his life for theirs? Earthly, I'm going, this, that's not the beautiful story that I want, God, but it is. If I can get outside of it, it is. So for you, when it doesn't seem fair, when it doesn't seem right, when, when the selfishness rises up in us and it's part of our sin nature, I get it. You wanna blame God for the seasons that you're in. These are these moments where you open your hands and go, God, you're, you're, you're making beauty from ashes and I'm too close. And so I need your comfort. I need the spirit to comfort me in this season and get me through this until I can get to the point where I can zoom out a little bit and see what you're doing. But in the midst of that, I just wanna trust you. So that's our prayer tonight. 
for those of us that, that are in those spaces, that you would learn to trust God more in those spaces and allow him to get you through. And for those of you that are like distant from the Lord, that you would learn to trust God more with your life. And for those of you that have no relationship with Jesus, that you would learn to trust Jesus for the first time because this is life. And Solomon does a beautiful job of clarifying what life is. There's seasons and they're good and they're bad. And we can all testify to that. What's your response going to be? When you trust, you enjoy. And then when you enjoy, when you enjoy that, you can reflect Jesus to others in the midst of trial. And that's what he's calling us to. Let me pray for you. And then we'll respond in worship. God, thank you for your goodness. Even when your goodness doesn't meet the definition of my goodness, thank you for that goodness. Thank you for a story that if I would have written, it would look totally different and I would have messed it up. But, but in your infinite knowledge, you write a story that is, that is beautiful. And so God, we are thankful that we were created in Christ Jesus. That we're created for good works, which you predestined, that you prepared since the beginning of time so that we could walk in them. And some of them are difficult, some of them are easy. In the midst of our journey, in the midst of these students' journeys, may they learn to trust you. No matter what they're sitting in, may they trust you. May that be their anthem tonight that I trust you. For the first time or for the thousandth, I trust you. No matter what you're doing, God, would you give us the boldness to rise up into that? In Jesus' name.